Well, it's good to be here today. I'm going to talk to you on a subject that I don't ever talk about, and that is discipleship. So, I want to start off by asking a question. How many of you guys know who, now you've probably heard me talk about him once or twice, but how many of you know who, the, who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is? Who's, who's heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? The eight of you. All right. So, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, in these past couple of years, become what I would consider uh, to be a written mentor for me in my ministry uh, because of the incredible amount of work that he uh, did on the subject of discipleship. Now, I want to ask a second question. Did anyone in this room take German as a subject in high school? Three of you. Okay. How many years did you take? One year. How many years did you take, Sam? Two years. Wow. You get a copy of The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The only thing that I ask is that you promise that you will read that book because it is a phenomenal book. Um, let, me, let me just open up by just sharing with you just for a couple minutes. I'm not preaching on Dietrich Bonhoeffer today, uh, but I, I just want to open up by just talking to you for just a couple minutes about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, I, I know you've heard me mention him uh, at least once or twice over the last couple years. Uh, but Bonhoeffer uh, was born into a large family in, in Breslau, Poland, okay, in 1906, all right? Uh, he became a German pastor, theologian, a spy, an anti-Nazi dissident, and he also was one of the key founding members of what was called the Confessing Church uh, in Germany in, in, in the mid-1900s. And, and what makes it so important for me to tell you about the Confessing Church is because the Confessing Church was one of the few uh, Christian churches in Germany uh, that openly opposed the Nazi regime, okay? Uh, and so Bonhoeffer was a part of all of this ministry. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was imprisoned in 1943 for refusing uh, to join the military and for talking against Adolf Hitler's uh, persecution of the Jews. After a failed bomb uh, plot on uh, July 20th of 1944, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a part of this, this group that quite truthfully uh, they, they attempted to assassinate uh, Adolf Hitler. And, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, uh, a pacifist by nature, believed, and, and, and one quote said that killing Adolf Hitler was the lesser of evils, letting him live or, or taking him out, okay? And so after a failed attempt, they attempted, and there were several attempts during World War II uh, to assassinate uh, Adolf Hitler. After that uh, uh, assassination attempt 
failed. The Nazis decided uh, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was too dangerous, and Adolf Hitler ordered his execution. Uh, the Nazis hanged, hung, hang, hung, had a Bonhoeffer in the notorious Flossenburg concentration camp, and he died on April 9th, 1945, just two weeks before the end of World War II. This, what I would consider to be great Christian martyr and theologian, wrote many, many books. The most famous is The Cost of Discipleship, which I just handed to Stacy. The original German title of this book was Nachfolger, and I hope I said that right, but it literally means following or the act of following. And so in this book, The Cost of Discipleship, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, he coined a term And we've probably heard this term at different times over our lives in ministry and heard different ministers talk about this, but he coined a term, uh, cheap grace. Have any of you ever heard the phrase, cheap grace? He called it cheap grace, and what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about cheap grace, he said, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. He wrote these words. He said, cheap grace is a grace without a price, without cost. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. And so Bonhoeffer goes on to contrast cheap grace with what he calls costly grace. And costly grace, if you put this up on the slide, costly grace is the hidden treasure in the field for the sake of which people go and sell all they have. Costly grace is the pearl for whose value is so great that the merchant sells all that he has. It is Christ's sovereignty for the sake of which you tear an eye out or cut off a hand if it causes you to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ which causes a disciple to leave his nets and follow him. You see, this morning when we talk about discipleship, when we talk about the cost of discipleship, it is the understanding that when Christ came and lived and died and rose on the third day, he paid that price. He made it possible not for us just to call ourselves Christians, but he did that so that you and I could experience full grace that transforms us into followers of Jesus Christ, that causes us 
to want to see not only our lives transformed through him, but we want to see those around us transformed because of Christ. Amen? If you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 22. Matthew chapter, two, chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. I want to read this to you. It says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net in the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. An interesting fact about the two of those is that they also were known as the sons of thunder. Now that's a whole other story. And they were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Now I want you to jump forward to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. I want to read another verse of Scripture to you. It says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. You see, what I want to do today in this message is I want to focus on verse 19 of chapter 4 when Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What does that mean? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You see, Jesus, he called the first disciples near the beginning of his ministry and he was in a region called Galilee and you can put that up there. So this is, in the early part of Jesus' ministry, every thing that we read mostly about Jesus up until going to Jerusalem took place in this little area right here. This is where he did most of his ministry for the first part of those three years before going to Jerusalem, okay? Now, Galilee is where Jesus began preaching a subject that many of these folks had not heard. He began preaching the subject of, of repentance and the good news, the gospel. Now, the majority of the first three gospels happen around Galilee. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all take place around Galilee. And there were about 204 cities total and villages in Galilee uh, with an estimated population of about 2 million, maybe 3 million people, okay? So it's a pretty good population, huh? Galilee is a place um, of great natural fertility. The soil in this region uh, uh, re rejects pretty much no plant. You can just about grow anything in this region. A and the air suits pretty much just about any kind of variety. So if you're, in, if you're in agriculture, if you're in farming, this is the place to be, okay? 
The fruits grown there are are, are remarkable. Uh, The Galilean commerce at this time was heavily dependent on both agriculture and fishing, all right? So Jesus calls disciples from their lifestyles. He calls them from their occupation. Regardless of, and this is the first thing I want you to understand today when we talk about discipleship, regardless of where you grew up, how you lived your life up until this point, how much money you have, how little money you have, regardless of how uh, terrible of sins you have committed, or maybe you've just been a good person your whole life, Jesus is calling you, is calling us to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't care where you've been up to this point. That's the Jesus that we serve, amen? No matter what our past, Jesus calls us to leave our old lifestyle, to follow him as our Lord, to become, now this is the key part, to become transformed, to be like him, to go and make disciples. Remember what I'm saying all the time? What do I always say? I say you should live your life in such a way as though as though Jesus were living your life for you. That is what being a disciple of Jesus Christ. So the question that I want to deal with today is how does God make disciples? Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The first thing that Jesus did with the 12 that he called was he went out to them and he said, listen, come and see. Come and see what I'm doing. Come and and see where I'm at. Leave what you're doing right now. Come and see what I'm all about. You see, in order for us to become disciples of Jesus Christ, the first thing that we have to do is we have to come and see what Christ is doing. In verse 21, Jesus said, Jesus called them. These fishermen, they didn't go looking for Jesus, okay? Uh, Jesus came to them. He came to where they lived, and he called them. And that's the thing that I want us to understand today, first and foremost. Jesus has been pursuing you from the very beginning. There is not one person in this room that Jesus is not pursuing. There's not one person in this community, there's not one person in the city of Bethalto, in the city of Wood River, in the city of Edwardsville, in the city of Alton, and the list goes on, Bunker Hill, whatever, Collinsville. There's not one person that God is not seeking. And he's calling out, come and see. I want you to think about it for a minute. What did these fishermen do? The scripture says Peter and Andrew at once, when Jesus called them, what did did Peter and Andrew do? They dropped their nets. It says James and John immediately left the boat of their father. It says Matthew got up and followed him. What did the disciples give up? Simon and Simon Peter and his brother Andrew dropped their fishing nets to follow Jesus. 
The sons of Zebedee, James and John, both brothers, they left their boat. They left their father to follow Jesus. Bartholomew, Bartholomew, uh, likely a farmer, uh, left his family farming business to follow Jesus. Jude, his younger brother, uh, James, they pushed aside their intense, violent, nationalistic views. They were, they were part of a, a zealot group. They left that to follow Jesus. Matthew, a tax collector, got up and left his business to follow Jesus. Philip, likely another fisherman, left his nets, left his boat to follow Jesus. Simon the Zealot, he was so zealot they called him Simon the Zealot. He left his views and hatred of Rome to follow Jesus. Thomas had to give up his pessimistic views, or he tried to, to follow Jesus. Now we don't know much about Matthias other than he was already a follower when he was chosen to take the place of Judas. But he followed Jesus. The most notorious of all apostles Paul gave up his life as a Pharisee to follow Christ. You see, this ragtag group of five fishermen, one farmer, one tax collector, two nationalists, one zealot, one pessimist, one latecomer, and a Pharisee made up the group of men Jesus called to make his disciples. And it all began... Because he said to them, come and see. Jesus called these first disciples to leave their past life and follow him, transforming these men into disciple makers. You know, I think back in my childhood. I was seven years old when I first gave my heart to Christ. Seven years old. I don't know if I've told you this story. If I have told you this story, just pretend like it's the first time again, okay? I'll probably add something new that I didn't tell you before. I was seven years old. I was sitting in a little Baptist church in Ritman, Ohio. My grandfather was preaching the revival there. And so anytime Grandpa preached a revival, we were there. Anytime. All the time. He preached a lot of revivals. At this particular revival in Ritman, Ohio, my grandfather was preaching, and they had, back in the 70s, they used to, and maybe some of you remember this, they used to do, uh, they'd bring in people, and while the pastor was preaching, somebody, an artist or somebody, they would do a chalk drawing. Do you remember chalk drawings? While my grandfather was preaching, this man was up there, had a chalkboard. It was just a chalkboard with about 20 different colors of chalk. And man, he was just drawing, and, and he was drawing. I don't remember what the scene was, uh, but he was drawing. I knew it had to do something to do with what my grandfather was preaching. And somewhere in the midst of that service, little Stevie's heart started going like this. And I started getting very uncomfortable. And I started sweating a little bit. And my grandfather, who usually screamed most of his sermons, 
He got to the end of the message. I knew it was the end of the message because he started bringing his voice down. And he said, anyone here today who wants to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, come down to this altar and ask Jesus into your heart. Now, I got to be honest with you. I came down that day. I gave my heart to Jesus that day. I committed to being a follower of Jesus Christ that day. Two days later, my grandfather, because he didn't waste any time, he took me out to a creek. It was in the winter. I call it a creek because it wasn't a creek to him. It was a creek. He busted ice, and he baptized me. That I never will forget. <laughs> now, I will be honest with you. I came to the altar many, many times after that. I joke that I probably gave my heart to Jesus at least 50 times between my freshman and senior year of high school. But it was on that day at the age of seven years that I heard, come and see. And I responded to that. You see, the first way that Jesus makes disciples is he says, come and see. Come and see that I am good. Come and see what I am doing. Come and see what I am about. And at the age of seven, I came and I saw what Jesus was about. You see, how do you know you're called to be a disciple? Each one of us is called to be a disciple when we hear the gospel message and the Holy Spirit draws us in. If the Holy Spirit has drawn you by the gospel message, you confess and you repent of your sins, you make Jesus your Lord, you give your allegiance to him, and that is called being a disciple. You see, this morning, I want to say this to you. If you have not yet accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, until you do that, you are not a disciple of Christ. But, this is a good but, you can do it at any moment. Matter of fact, you can do it before this message even ends. Now that leads me to the second part of this message, and that is, and this is the whole path of discipleship, in my opinion. Jesus says, come and see. And when we respond, we see that he is good, and that leads us to the second step in discipleship, and that is, Jesus leads disciples, he leads us to follow him. He says, come and see, and then the next step is come and follow me. In verse 19, when he is talking to the disciples, he says, follow me. You see, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, or are you, are you just someone who knows about him? You see, I'm sad to say this today, but there are a lot of people in the church today, the church as a whole seems to be made up of a lot of people who know about Jesus, 
but they're not followers of Jesus. And so I'm going to challenge you today. I'm going to ask you the question, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, or do you just know about him? Do you talk to him daily, or do you just admire him on Sundays? Are you part of his body, or do you just attend church? Do you put on the full armor of God or just wear the t-shirt that says I'm a believer? Are you learning his playbook, the Bible, or do you just analyze the plays and the stats of other Christ followers? I threw that in a little bit because we're getting ready to go into football season. You see, how a person answers these questions, how a person answers the follower versus the fan question, is how we define discipleship. Because you see, a disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves today is, are we a follower or are we just a fan? Are we in the game or are we just sitting on the sideline watching the game? I heard someone say this not too many weeks ago. He said, uh, I don't know if I said this, but I'm going to tell you again because it's, he said, the church, the church is a lot like a football game. There are 22 players down on the field in desperate need of rest and 60,000 fans in the stadiums in desperate need of exercise. Are you a fan or are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Because you see, he calls us, yes, to come and see. But the next thing that has to happen in our lives is we have to come and follow him. Now, we've established that Jesus leads disciples and disciples follow. Let's talk about the third point today, and that is Jesus transforms his disciples, okay? A disciple is someone who lives their life in such a way as though Christ were living their life for him. A a, a disciple is someone who is acting, living, being like Jesus. Jesus says, come and see. He says, come and follow. But the third thing that he says to us is he says, not only do you need to see and follow, but you need to be like me. You need to be like Jesus Christ. You see, if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, our actions, our behavior, what we say, what we do, what we have in our mind, our attitude has to be a reflection of Jesus Christ. Again, verse 19 says, and I will make you. Now, I want you to get that, okay? Jesus does not call us to be disciples and then say, which is, it's a sad thing, but we do this so often in the church. Jesus doesn't say, I want you to be a disciple, and so you say, okay, I want to be a disciple, and Jesus says, all right, go have fun, man, figure it out. But that's what we do in the church so often, 
Come down here and give your heart to Jesus Christ. Come down here and commit, confess your sins. Repent. And you get up and you're like, ah. and then we go, see you later. Have fun. Do the best you can. No. Jesus says, come and be. He, you know what he said to the disciples? He said, I will make you fishers of men. What does that mean? That means he's going to teach us how to be fishers of men. Jesus' goal is to transform us into his likeness. Romans 9, or Romans 8, verse 29, I don't have this up there, so don't look for it, okay? says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, what does that mean to us today? That means before we came into existence, when we were still in our mother's womb, his plan was for you to be a follower of him. That doesn't mean he's predestined. It doesn't mean he, that, that you don't have any you don't have any, there's nothing, you know, you're, you're like, it's all planned out. and there's, It doesn't mean that. It means the plan for you and you and you and you and you and you and you, and you, and you, and you, you is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 through 24. This is all a, part of, all a part of the being. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, when we become followers of Jesus Christ, when we come and see, when we follow, when we make the decision to, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus transforms our minds and our hearts so that we can see the lost, so that we can see the world through his eyes. Not through Steve's eyes, not through Ron's eyes, not through Marcy's eyes, through Jesus' eyes. He transforms us in such a way that we can become his hands. We can become his feet to the world that is lost around us. He transforms us and trains us to tell our story and his ultimate story through what has happened to us. You see, God wants to transform us to be like Jesus. Many times God allows us to go through difficult circumstances to mold us and change our behavior to be like Christ. How many of you have ever gone through a difficult circumstance in your life? Five of you. How many of you have ever gone through a difficult circumstance in your life and when you made it through that to the other side, you were transformed because of it? You saw something you'd never seen before. You see, God doesn't take us through these difficult times just because he doesn't like us. 
He doesn't do it because he wants to pick on us because we're inferior to him. We go through these times of trials, and Scripture promises us that they're going to be there. If, you're, if you became a follower of Jesus Christ under anyone other than, if, if you heard a message that told you that when you became a follower of Jesus Christ, everything was going to become totally perfect and everything was going to be easy from that day forward, I just want to tell you right now, uh, you were lied to. This is not in the Scripture. James is a whole book about there will be trials, okay? But through those fires, through those trials, through those difficult situations, what God does promise us is that Jesus, our Heavenly Father, knows that we are going through those trials and he will never leave us, he will never forsake us through those trials. And through that, we, as we stay focused on him, we become more and more and more like him. It's like that cup illustration that I use all the time. When we are followers of Jesus Christ, when we accept him into our lives, our cup is filled with us. Or it might be filled with Uncle Joe or Uncle Sally or Aunt, I guess not Uncle Sally. Well, it could be an Uncle Sally. In this day and age, it could be. All right. But the more we walk with him, the more we live with him, the more of us gets dumped out. The more of us gets dumped out. It's just water. Just don't trip on it when you come up. The more of us come out. And the cool thing about it is, is the more of us that comes out, if we're truly following him, that gives more space for him to fill. So we will never arrive this side of eternity, but my prayer is that someday my cup will be filled more with Jesus than it is with Steve. That's what it means to come and be a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, when the Apostle Paul was in chains in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, he said these words. He said, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Jesus Christ. Because you see, folks, when we have more of Christ in us than ourselves, the world notices. The world sees Jesus. That leads me to the fourth part of this. You see, as disciples of Christ, understanding this discipleship process, Jesus says, come and see. He says, come and follow. He says, come and be. The fourth part is the most important part, and that is this, come and remain. 
Now, what does that mean, come and remain? Some people misconstrue that. What Jesus is basically saying here is, listen, if you are going to be my disciple, if you're going to come see what I'm doing, and you're going to buy into it, and you're going to follow me, and you're going to be like me, if you're going to be like me, remaining in me means that you're going to do what I do, and that is you're going to go and make disciples yourself. You see, full discipleship, being a follower of Jesus Christ, is not complete unless you are making disciples, unless there is multiplication in the process. Verse 19 says, I will make you what? Fishers of men, fishers of women, fishers of children, fishers of anyone who is willing to come and see. In chapter 28, verse 19, Matthew pens Jesus' last words before he left this earth. Jesus said to his disciples, the last thing that he said, and you that are in my Wednesday night group, we're getting ready to come into chapter 28, either this week or next week, I can't remember. But Jesus says this, he says, right before he goes up into heaven, he says, therefore, go and make disciples of just your little group. Go and make disciples if you don't have anything else to do. Go and make disciples after you've worked for 20-some years and you're settled at home, you have a nice, nice home, you've got a nice car, and you've got everything that you want, then go... Oh, wait a second. No, I'm reading this wrong. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very ends of the age. That is the mandate if we are disciples of Jesus Christ. When we leave someone, we want our last words to count, don't we? We want our last words to be important, to make an impression on the person which we're speaking to. Every time I leave home, I tell Marcy, I love you. I give her a kiss, okay? Every time I take off in an airplane, I let Marcy know I love her. I'll text her. I'll give her a kiss before I walk out the door. If I'm on the plane, I'll text her before I take off in the plane. I tell her that I love her. When I leave, I want to to ensure my last words express how I feel about her. I love her. I want her to know it. When we never, we never know when will be our last words. And so I want to make sure my last words convey the most important things to my wife. George Harrison of the Beatles, his last words to his family were, love one another. Jack Daniels' last words were, one last drink, please. Steve Irwin's last words were, don't worry, stingrays don't usually swim backwards. 
After the priest told Charlie Chapman, these are true, okay? After the priest told Charlie Chapman, may the Lord have mercy on your soul, Charlie Chapman's last words to the priest were, were, why not? After all, it belongs to him. Harriet Tubman's last words were, swing low, sweet chariot. Murderer James W. Rogers, as he was put in front of a firing squad in Utah, asked if he had a last request, and he replied, bring me a bulletproof vest. Now, why do I read all these? Not all of these famous people made their last words count. Some did, some didn't. I'm going to tell you right here today, Jesus made his last words count when he said to us, go and make disciples. I want to put one last thing up here because I want to talk to you just for two minutes. Well, how much time do I have? I got a couple more minutes. About disciples. This is something that I have been developing over the last six months, and it's something that has uh, been uh, life-transforming for me as I have been studying and speaking and talking with other folks. You see, I think in the church today, one of the biggest struggles that we have is that when we talk about disciples, we only do one side of what it means to be a disciple. Because you see, in order to be a full disciple of Jesus Christ, you not only need to be in discipleship, but you also need to be disciple-making. You see, in the church today and in the Christian community, for the most part, we have down the discipleship side in a lot of ways. We talk about things like discipleship first begins with salvation. You need to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. And so you need to come to an altar and you need to ask for repentance. Or you need to go somewhere and seek and ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and make a decision to follow him. And then in discipleship, in discipleship, we often tell you, you need to find a good church. and You need to be a part of a Christian community. Now, does going to church make you a follower of Jesus Christ? No. But you need to find a community to be a part of. In discipleship, we tell you, you need to study your Bible, although oftentimes what we do is we hand you a Bible and say, study your Bible, and that's like handing you a Greek novel and saying, memorize this. You're like... And that's why so many people, their Bibles are collecting dust on the shelves. They come to church on Sundays and they hear 45 minutes worth of speaking. But the word of God is not enthusiastic to them. It's not exciting to them. It's not something that they long for. But we tell you that you need to study your Bible. We tell you you need to, you need to tithe, man. And I'm a real big proponent of this. You need to tithe, okay? You need to tithe, all right? I'm not going to talk about that. That was kind of a joke. I was just being kind of funny there. But you make it possible for us to do ministry. You need to find some place to serve. Maybe you're a greeter, or maybe you're an usher, or maybe you work in the kids' church on Sunday mornings, or maybe, maybe you do the wonderful job that Rosemary does every Sunday getting the communion together. And then you need to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't make decisions on your own. Allow the Holy Spirit to move you. And oftentimes, this side 
is all that we focus on. But folks, Jesus didn't say. The last words that he said weren't, become a great disciple of me. Is that the last words he said? No, the last words that Jesus Christ said was go and make disciples. And so all of this on the left side, this is all preparing us to be disciple makers. And a disciple, ma a disciple maker sees God's goodness in life and others. That's why every Wednesday night when I sit down with my group, I ask them, how are you doing loving the people God's placed in your life this week? And that's a very interesting conversation sometimes. Because people aren't always that lovely, are they? There are, is there anybody in your life that's hard to love? Don't raise your hand. Don't look at the person next to you. But a disciple maker sees God's goodness in life and in others. A disciple maker is spending time with Jesus. Not just reading their Bible, but spending time with Jesus, listening. A disciple maker is loving others well. A disciple maker is listening to God and responding to what you hear him say to you. A disciple maker re is a reproducing disciple. Folks, if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ, the cost of discipleship is not just getting your ticket to go to heaven someday. It is living a life that reflects Jesus Christ. And none of us here today would be disciples unless Jesus reached out to us. Amen? So this morning, I want you to close your eyes as the band comes up for this last couple minutes. I want everybody to close your eyes just for a minute. And with your eyes closed, I want you to imagine in your mind right now that Jesus is speaking directly to you. And he is saying to you, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, as your eyes are closed, I want to ask some questions of you this morning. Have you answered his call? Have you left your old life to follow him? Are you a, a true follower? Or are you just a fan? Are you allowing him to transform your life into his likeness? Are you sharing the story that he is developing in your life with others?
Are you telling the gospel message of Jesus Christ to the people that he has placed in your life? Are you going and making disciples? As we all stand this morning, the challenge is for us to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And I can tell you right now, folks, there is a cost to it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about cheap grace and he talked about costly grace. And this was a man who ended up giving his life because he couldn't operate in the arena of cheap grace. I'm not here to tell you that being a follower of Jesus Christ, being a disciple of Jesus Christ is going to be easy all time. I'm not here to tell you that there aren't going to be sacrifices that you're going to have to make. I'm not here to tell you that there are going to be some changes that need to be made. I'm not going to tell you there aren't going to be. But what I am going to tell you Someday each one of us is going to stand before our Lord and Savior. And there's going to be a count of every part of our life. And he's not going to look at how perfect we did things. He does not expect perfection. What he's going to look at is he's going to look at where we put our allegiance. Did we put our allegiance in him? Or did we put our allegiance in the world? He's going to look at our obedience. Did we carry his name in action? Or did we just carry it in word? he's going to look at us and he's going to look in our face to see if in our faces he can see a reflection of himself For me on that day, I only want to hear him make one statement. Well done, good and faithful. And that's what I want to hear for each one of you. Heavenly Father, this morning, Lord, I just ask that here today, our hearts and minds would be drawn to you. And Lord, today we would, if we're not ready to make a decision, if today we would at least begin to process who we are and who we could be in you. 
And Lord, I pray that Lifebrook Church would be a church in this community that produces disciples of Jesus Christ. I pray this in your precious name. Amen.